Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. This is the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast, and we have Professor Art Leonard with us to talk to us about the most recent LGBT litigation goings on. But before we get into that, we are in the middle of a high-stakes confirmation battle over the control of the Supreme Court and the next Supreme Court justice who will fill Justice Ginsburg's seat. A few weeks ago, we spoke with experts about Justice Ginsburg's legacy and what is at stake for the Supreme Court, particularly around LGBT rights and its legitimacy. Before the confirmation hearings, we were able to talk with Demand Justice's Chris Kang about the future of a progressive judiciary and how a Biden administration, if we're so lucky to get one, would respond in kind by packing the courts with progressive judges to mitigate some of the disastrous impacts of the Trump administration. This week, the Senate Judiciary Committee will be voting up or down whether they're going to advance Amy Coney Barrett's nomination to the full Senate floor. And of course, we learned a lot from the confirmation hearing, even though we didn't really learn anything from the confirmation hearing. So next week, we are going to be talking with Sharon McGowan, who is Chief Strategy Officer at Lambda Legal, about Amy Coney Barrett's record and what's at stake for the Supreme Court if she is confirmed. But this is, of course, the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT podcast. And even though we started out with the Supreme Court confirmation news, which is certainly bad, and of course there was a ruling that stopped the counting of the census, then there was an invitation by Thomas and Alito to possibly end marriage equality. So while it seems like all federal courts news is bad, I was certainly surprised when I opened up the latest edition of Law Notes and found a series of wins on a broad range of issues. These issues ranged from access to health care, social security, survivor benefit fairness, and equal military service for people living with HIV. So it was certainly broad in scope, but they all did have one thing in common. They were all cases that were brought by Lambda Legal. With us to discuss these topics and more is New York Law School professor Art Leonard, chief editor and writer of Legal's LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments of LGBT importance here and abroad. Hi, Art. Okay, okay. It's it's nice to be able to have an issue of Law Notes where we have a bunch of positive rulings to uh to talk about. The problem is they're all district court rulings and some of them are like denying motions to dismiss and stuff like that. So we still have a long way to go toward finality. And uh, that's why what Trump has done to the courts of appeals is of great concern. And what may happen when, when or if, more likely when the Senate confirms Amy Coney Barrett is a matter right. of great concern. Right. So let's, um, before we dig into the very first case, uh, I do want to get, and I'm sure our listeners want to hear, a little bit of your insight about uh, Amy Coney Barrett broadly, and maybe the frustration involved with what we didn't learn from, or perhaps did, in your opinion, learn from her confirmation hearing. Well, we don't learn anything from confirmation hearings. I, I actually wrote a law review uh, commentary several years back about the subject of Supreme Court confirmation hearings. And I said, we should not have the nominees testify because they're putting the position of constantly saying, I can't respond to that question because a case like that might come before me. 
and uh, you know Justice Ginsburg is is frequently invoked because she specifically said that, but several people have said that, and we should remember that nominees to the Supreme Court did not start testifying in person until the 1930s. Prior to that time, throughout U.S. history, it was considered inappropriate for nominees to the Supreme Court to respond to questioning in a public hearing uh, because anything they said could compromise them in terms of charges of bias or of prejudging with respect to cases that would come before them. So my view is the only people the Senate should agree to confirm are those who have such an extensive public record of service as a judge or a politician or whatever, but lots of writings, lots of speeches, lots of public statements. We can look at what they were saying when they weren't Supreme Court nominees, which is the best indication of what they really believed, and not go through this carnival farce. Uh, before the Senate. Sure, they should have hearings. They should have witnesses testifying for and against. Uh, they should have uh, committees scrutinizing the publications and uh, public statements of the nominees. That should all be part of the grist for the mill. But I think we don't learn anything from these hearings. What we know about her is that she is affiliated with a very, very conservative religious uh, association. She's uh, a Catholic. Don't hold that against her. One of my favorite justices on the court right now is a Catholic, Justice Sotomayor. After we lost Justice Ginsburg, Justice Sotomayor comes in next place. Uh, and uh, one of my uh, favorite past justices, Justice Brennan, was a Catholic. So I don't rule out people because they belong to a particular religious denomination. But I am very concerned uh, with the issue that Senator Feinstein highlighted a few years ago when President Trump nominated uh, Barrett to the Seventh Circuit. And that is her public statements about her role as a lawyer indicate that propagating her religious beliefs are number one on the list. And she talks about that as part of her role as a lawyer. And so it was, I think, legitimate to ask at that time, is that gonna be at the top of your list as a judge? I think it's, it's pretty clear that she is very, very conservative on a lot of fronts, that she will probably, according to those who have taken a deep dive into her record, uh, when you rank the Supreme Court justices from most liberal to most conservative, she's probably not as far right wing as Justice Thomas, but somewhere close to Alito. And you know, we're never gonna get Alito's vote on any LGBT rights case. Uh, he and Thomas, uh, as you indicated, already issued a statement uh, in response to a denial of cert that they agreed to, but a statement saying that at some point we're going to have to take on the Obergefell case because they said the Obergefell case has clearly placed uh, an undue burden on people of religious faith who don't believe in same-sex marriage. Uh, so uh, exactly what that means in that statement, I don't know, but they may pick up another vote for that from Judge Barrett. And it seems pretty clear that in the case that the court will be considering uh, the day after the election, November 4th, oral argument, Fulton versus city of Philadelphia, they're gonna be confronting the clash between anti-discrimination policies and free exercise of religion in a case involving Catholic social services of Philadelphia, which was dropped from the foster care program by the city because they will not deal with married same-sex couples as potential foster parents. 
Wow. So we could really go on and on about the confirmation and about all that's at stake. And of course, the next time we'll be meeting together, it will be after the election, which may change literally everything we're getting ready to talk about. But let's dig right into the very first case because we do have some good news to present to folks. Um, so for anyone who doesn't know, the Pentagon has a discriminatory deployment policy, which prevents service members living with HIV from deploying outside the United States without a special waiver. And as Art and I have discussed previously, the military admits that it rarely issues this waiver. Um, the Trump administration is now using that argument to argue that deployment restrictions justify discharging HIV-positive service members. So on October 2nd, a federal district court denied the Trump administration's motion to dismiss a lawsuit brought by Lambda Legal on behalf of two former U.S. military cadets. Both are challenging the administration's discriminatory policies targeting service members living with HIV. Listeners to our podcast may remember Art discussing a Fourth Circuit ruling earlier this year that halted efforts to discharge members of the Air Force because they were living with HIV. That, of course, was a Lambda Legal case. Um, so, Art, let's go ahead and talk about this first one and why it's such an important victory. Okay. Well, this is a point that we should be making because we tend to bl blame everything on the Trump administration, but actually the policy that we're talking about here was active during the Obama administration. Uh, and uh, it was just like a coincidence of timing that this ended up uh, being a Trump administration issue as well. So uh, what happens here, uh, we have two plaintiffs in this case, Kevin Dees and, and a, a pseudonymous plaintiff, John Doe. Uh, Dees uh, was uh, in the uh, Naval Academy, Doe in the Air Force Academy. Doe had actually previously been in the service and then decided to uh, apply to, uh, to go to the academy for, to become an officer. Uh, Dees was uh, directly in the, in the Naval Academy. Uh, in both cases, they tested positive for HIV. Under the prevailing policy, they could not be commissioned as officers. And this seems a bit contradictory because uh, if they had been non-commissioned members or even commissioned officers uh, when they tested positive, they wouldn't be automatically discharged. Uh, there was a possibility of, uh, of waiver or of service in the U.S., depending on the nature of, of their position in the military. But the policy with respect to the service academies, which is set by the service academies, was that someone couldn't be certified as medically, physically qualified to serve. Uh, and so they couldn't be commissioned. They would be allowed to graduate but they would be uh, given an honorable discharge on the grounds that they were not physically qualified to serve. So Kevin Dees from the Navy and John Doe from the Air Force both uh, sought to, uh, to have waivers in these cases, the waivers. Uh, the interesting thing is their applications for waivers were backed up by the people who knew them in the military. It's when the request got to the political level, to the assistant secretary level, which are political appointees, not necessarily career military people, that the waivers were denied. Uh, so Lambda represents both of them and, and sued. And the issue for the court 
and this is Federal District Court in Maryland, which is within the Fourth Circuit, which means the Roe decision that we previously uh, discussed is relevant to this. Now, the Roe decision involved currently serving people who were being denied deployment, uh, which was really going to end their military careers. Uh, and in that case, the Fourth Circuit said that this doesn't seem to be based on the science. This doesn't seem to be based on any kind of reasoned uh, decision about whether they were physically qualified. They were compliant with their HIV meds. They, uh, they were undetectable level of virus. They were physically fit, et cetera, et cetera. Why are you keeping them out? Uh, and uh, in this case, the judge said pretty much the same thing. He said, it would be incongruous if we have this Fourth Circuit decision saying you can't throw people out because of HIV. And now at the federal district court level, I'm being asked whether you can refuse to let them be commissioned when they've completed the course at the service academy. And uh, they really should be treated as similar. Furthermore, there's an official Department of Defense policy that people cannot be discriminated against solely because of their HIV status, which is the policy under which waivers are available. Uh, and But they never grant waivers. So uh, here, uh, the, the claim that uh, this policy violates the Administrative Procedure Act, which any policy or regulation by any administrative agency or any agency of the government is subject to the Administrative Procedure Act requirements. And the Administrative Procedure Act requires that uh, there be a reason basis for any policy. Uh, the, the argument by the plaintiffs in this case was that the policy runs contrary to science so as to render it arbitrary and capricious and is inconsistent and in conflict with regulations governing active duty service members who are not treated this way. Uh, so the court rejects the argument by the administration that the rules are not reviewable and notes that the professionals, that is the military officers who provided written support for their applications for waivers, you know, that's military judgment. The political appointees who turned down the waivers, that's not military judgment. That's, and it's clear that that's political. Uh, the district court found the plaintiffs had plausibly alleged that the defendants intentionally treated them differently based on their HIV status from those similarly situated graduates of the service academy, that there's no rational basis for this. Uh, the court found that this was a rational basis case when you applied equal protection uh, arguments. Uh, the, the court said the plaintiffs have exemplary military service academy records. They would have received commissions with the rest of their graduating classes, but for their HIV status. So based on the road decision from the fourth circuit, the district court found that such sweeping language from that decision applies equally to the rational basis inquiry in this decision. So both the APA and the equal protection arguments come into play here. And Judge Bennett denied the government's motion to dismiss this case. He said, there is simply no basis to hold that officers must be free from HIV, even if they're physically capable of service and would otherwise be able to deploy. The military's policy of withholding officer commissions from HIV positive service members renders those service members second class citizens. This is precisely what the Equal Protection Clause forbids. Well, those are certainly some powerful words. 
And uh, shout out to Scott Chavez, who is uh, the HIV project director at Lambda Legal and has been leading this work for so many years. And of course, it does seem very likely that a change in administration, particularly one that uh, believes in science, uh, might have a real impact on uh, what happens with this case and whether it's mooted because of a change of policy. All right, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk about Social Security survivor benefits for same-sex spouses. All right, we're back. After winning the fight for marriage equality and finally being able to wed, some same-sex couples are now fighting for equal access to benefits that were only denied because discriminatory marriage bans prohibited marriage in the first place. So now we're going to talk about a ruling that was handed down on September 11th, where a federal district court judge in Washington state struck down as unconstitutional the categorical denial of Social Security survivor benefits to surviving same-sex partners who were prohibited from marrying due to discriminatory state marriage bans. And of course, listeners to this podcast may recall that Lambda Lisa... (laughs) And of course, listeners to this podcast may recall Lambda Legal also won a class action lawsuit earlier this year on behalf of same-sex couples who were, because of state marriage bans, unable to be married for nine months as required for Social Security survivor benefits. And of course, this recent ruling is also a Lambda Legal case. So if it's right in with our theme, Art, talk to us about this recent win. Okay, well, the, the key finding in this case was that the social security qualifications for surviving spousal benefits are so intertwined with state marriage law that if people would have married, had they been allowed to marry under state law, uh, but they're denied it because of an unconstitutional state marriage ban, that infects the social security uh, qualification as well, according to uh, Judge James Robart of the uh, Western District of Washington. So he granted uh, summary judgment and he also granted class certification, but he had to limit the class certification because he said the jurisdiction of the court in this issue is premised on denials of benefits being reviewable in the district courts. And so he said the class may only consist of people not only who might have qualified by being married at a time when it was forbidden by state law when one of them died, they also have to have subsequently, uh, the survivor had to have subsequently actually applied for the benefits and been turned down in order to be a member of the class. Uh, And these, of course, by definition, this this class involves people who weren't married because state law prohibited it. Uh, So we're talking about uh, cases that that involve uh, people who uh, spouses who died before the Windsor decision at the least, uh, but more likely before Obergefell. I mean, before the Windsor decision, the federal government wouldn't have recognized the marriage even if it was contracted. On, and they were, by the time of the Windsor decision, there were a lot of states that allowed same-sex marriage. This was 2013 already. We had at least half a dozen states. And then between Windsor and Obergefell, We got so many states through litigation that by the time the Supreme Court was deciding the Obergefell case, I think a majority of the states allowed same-sex marriage at that point as a result of circuit court decisions from many circuits that had been denied cert by the court earlier that term. Uh, So uh, 
you know, there, in those cases, it's the other case, Ely versus Saul, that uh, Lambda's involved in, that we talked about previously, uh, where the uh, court has certified a, a, a class of people who married once it became available and then a spouse died short of nine months. Uh, because the Social Security Administration or Congress, actually this is a, a, a statutory thing, Congress was afraid that when that single dying people would be married by others solely for the purpose of getting their survivor's benefits. You know, it was really be a sham marriage problem. So they took care of that by saying you have to have been married at least nine months uh, when uh, the spouse dies for the uh, surviving spouse to get the survivor benefits. Uh, so in, in this case, uh, the administration, the main problem here, the administration was uh, opposing the certification of a class because they said every case is going to depend on its individual facts because we're talking about a hypothetical. We're talking about whether people would have married and would they have married at least nine months before one of them died. You know, in this case, it's easy. The lead plaintiff, Thornton, uh, they'd been together for more than two decades uh, when the partner died in 2006 in the state of Washington where there was no same-sex marriage available. There were a, only a handful of places as of 2006 where you could have married. And of course, the federal government and the state of Washington wouldn't have recognized the marriage then. So it's sort of like, why would you do it? Uh, but uh, the judge said, look, the central legal issue in the case is common to everybody in the class. And that is whether people who would have married can qualify for this benefit if they were prevented from marrying because their state prohibited same-sex marriage. That defines a class with a common legal question. We think the Obergefell decision, of course, uh, as passed by the Supreme Court, requires strict equality for same-sex couples with respect to the right to marry. Uh, it's, and, and this isn't a necessary interpretation of Obergefell, which is why this is one of those victories once again where it, it, this could go to the Supreme Court and this could be a vehicle, not necessarily for overruling Obergefell because I think Chief Justice Roberts would be averse to overruling Obergefell even though he dissented. Uh, so I don't think we're necessarily gonna see an overruling of Obergefell, but this case would give a vehicle to the court for narrowing Obergefell's scope. So I think you know we, this is a big victory to get the class certified, to get the legal question answered by the district court. Uh, but at the same time, uh, people who want to claim these benefits are going to have to have been turned down before, and then they're going to have to go into court and prove they would have been married. Interesting. And so I'm guessing that there, like many of these cases, would be an administrative action that a new administration could take to change things regu uh, as far as regulations go. Well, the Social Security Administration could take action to set up a procedure for all these people uh, to do to get an administrative ruling. Uh, that would mean not appealing the case, you know, and the question is, is the government going to appeal? So once again, it comes down to the election. Yeah. All right. So let's take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about our final case, which has to do with transgender health care. All right, we're back. So as folks listening to this podcast know, the Obama administration issued a rule under Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act, which established a regulatory definition categorizing gender identity discrimination as discrimination on the basis of sex, and thus prohibited discrimination in the healthcare context against transgender people. 
In the midst of a global pandemic, the Trump administration, of course, issued a discriminatory health care rule to roll back those protections under the ACA. So there were challenges right away, one of which was brought by Lambda Legal. A district court judge in New York blocked this action just moments before it went into effect. And then in September, the court went even further and issued a preliminary injunction against authorizing broad religious exemptions from complying with the ACA's non-discrimination requirements. Uh, So let's go ahead and talk about this new development art. Okay. What we need to know is during the Obama administration, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, in common with many court rulings and with other administrative agency rulings, came to the conclusion that discrimination because of sex is covering uh, sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination. Uh, That followed the lead of the EEOC in uh, cases in 2013 and 2015. It followed the lead of various circuit courts. And ultimately, uh, it was vindicated in the Bostock decision this June. Now, under the Affordable Care Act's non-discrimination provision, it says that any form of discrimination that's prohibited under Title IX of the Education Amendments is prohibited under the Affordable Care Act. The uh, Title IX of the Education Amendments uh, forbids discrimination by educational institutions based on sex. And the Department of Education, back during the Obama administration, together with the Justice Department, interpreted that to extend to gender identity discrimination. So... That means that under the Affordable Care Act, gender identity discrimination would also be covered. And HHS issued uh, regulatory guidance to that effect. All right, the Trump administration comes in and the uh, Obama administration's policy had been on hold because of a decision by a US district court in Texas finding that it violated the statute to extend protection to gender identity uh, premised on the judge's view which uh, at that time contradicted the view of the Obama administration that gender identity is not covered under sex discrimination laws. So there was an injunction that prohibited HHS from enforcing the ACA anti-discrimination provision. But the injunction, of course, was not binding on private parties. So there's been lots of litigation under the Affordable Care Act's non-discrimination provision by transgender people seeking coverage under their insurance policies for gender confirmation uh, procedures and surgery. And most of them have won those cases in the district courts. Uh, But in the meantime, uh, the Obama administration filed an appeal in the Fifth Circuit of the federal district court decision in that case, which was called Franciscan Alliance versus Burwell. And that appeal was pending when Trump took office, right? The Trump administration's position was that gender identity is not covered under sex discrimination laws. So they notified the Fifth Circuit that they're not going to enforce the Obama administration's policy and they're going to withdraw it and it's going to be reconsidered. And so don't go ahead with the oral argument and the hearings and everything else. Uh, So they basically put that appeal on hold and ultimately, Early in June of this year, the Trump administration announced a new regulation to replace the old regulation. The new regulation would remove the language about gender identity, and the preamble to the regulation would explain that the uh, that HHS now disagrees with the position that was taken in the prior uh, regulation, and that based on the federal district court's decision 
in Franciscan Alliance, they were withdrawing gender identity from coverage under the ACA's anti-discrimination ban. Uh, now they published this, not in the Federal Register at first, it was just, it was announced in a press release from HHS and a posting on their website, just days before the Supreme Court ruled in the Bostock case, which of course, de facto overrules Franciscan Alliance. Now in this preamble, in the, uh, what they were saying they were going to be publishing, shortly. In this preamble, it said the pending appeal in the Bostock case may affect this analysis. All right. So the Bostock case comes out and just days later, they publish this without any alteration or mention of the Bostock decision in the Federal Register. And publication in the Federal Register means it takes effect as a regulation. They didn't explain how they can still take this position in light of the Bostock decision. They didn't explain really why they're excluding gender identity. They're just taking the position that gender identity isn't covered, which was articulated in a memorandum by then Attorney General Jeff Sessions way back in October 2017. Okay, so now challenges have been filed in various district courts. And uh, we already reported on the case of Walker versus Azar, a, a, a decision during the summer on August 17th the day before this regulation was supposed to take effect. So it was supposed to take effect on August 18th. On August 17th, U.S. District Judge Frederick Block in the U.S. District Court in Brooklyn, the Eastern District of New York, issued an injunction against the new definition in which gender identity was removed. But there, was, there were other lawsuits on file and on September 2nd, Judge James Bosberg of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia went a step further. So he is enjoining another part of the change definition because the Obama administration's regulation defining uh, discrimination because of sex also prohibited discrimination because of sex stereotypes. So he said, well, you know, I think that the sex stereotype thing has to come out as well. So I'm enjoining that. And it also interpolated a broad religious exemption, which it borrowed from Title IX, because Title IX does contain exemptions for religious schools from some of the requirements of Title IX. Uh, so he says, well, you know, I don't see that either. I, th I think that there's a problem with that, that that when the Affordable Care Act says forms of discrimination prohibited under uh, Title IX are prohibited under the ACA, that doesn't necessarily mean that exemptions incorporated into Title IX get transported into the ACA as well. Uh, so he enjoined both of those aspects. There were other aspects that the, uh, the plaintiffs in this case also were attacking but he went through and did a very detailed standing analysis with respect to the particular plaintiffs in the case and the particular provisions they were challenging. And he said, well, they don't really have standing to challenge certain of them and they have standing to challenge others and they have standing for these two. So I'm gonna issue an injunction with respect to these two. And that means that uh, there are now two injunctions outstanding against this new uh, Affordable Care Act regulation. Uh, and um, there's, there are other cases pending. I'm sure there are other things that may be struck down depending upon the standing analysis. But once again, these are possibly being appealed. 
uh, and uh, Trump has appointed several people to the DC circuit. Let's see what happens if he goes to the DC circuit. Uh, and since this one relies on Bostock pretty heavily, if this went up to the Supreme Court, that would give them a chance to perhaps narrow Bostock. Now, I said earlier that I don't think the addition of Amy Coney Barrett to the court would mean an overruling of Bostock. But recall that in the Bostock decision, Justice Gorsuch said the only question before us is whether a gay or transgender person can sue under Title VII. We don't purport to be deciding any of the substantive issues that would be raised in such a lawsuit, such as anti-discrimination policies, such as uh, access to uh, particular health care for transgender people, such as restroom access, you know, such as the ability to compete in athletic competitions for transgender people. All of these questions, which Justice Alito raised in his dissent as important looming issues that the court was opening up by extending Title VII, uh, Justice Gorsuch said, well, we're not answering any of those, which means it's still up to the Supreme Court to answer those in relevant cases. How far does their finding that discrimination because of sex necessarily covers discrimination because of gender identity, how far does it go in actual cases? So this is setting up more issues for the Supreme Court. Right. It strikes me as funny that as we're uh, talking about all the good news, we're still closing with the and looming over all of this is, is what- Amy the- Coney Barrett and the new <laughs> Supreme Court super conservative majority. So it is certainly true that while we're talking about all the good news that's jam-packed in this edition of Law Notes, it still hangs over us like a cloud, this looming uh, Supreme Court majority that we could come to see and what they could decide and what they could take away. I think we should also talk about, at least in the context of the healthcare ruling, that several members of the legal board uh, are actually staff members at Lambda Legal, Omar Gonzalez Pagan and uh, Carl Charles, uh, both serve on Legal's board. Both were responsible for bringing uh, this case. And uh, we're very much uh, intertwined. Legal offered uh, an amicus brief in this case. And to avoid any conflict of interest here, we should disclose that I'm a former Lambda board member and that Eric is a former Lambda staff attorney. <laughs> so, you know, we are, we, we take personal pride also when Lambda wins these victories. We certainly do. And that, of course, brings us to let's not take a break. We'll go right into our of note segment. And uh, this is also a Lambda legal case that we're going to be talking about. And we're going to do a little something uh, different. Uh, and that's I'm going to talk about the of note segment uh, or at least kick it off for us. Um, because I wrote about the ongoing litigation about the transgender military ban and access to documents that would help the plaintiffs prove their case in in this lawsuit. And of course, one of the five challenges to the uh, Trump administration's uh, hateful trans military ban was brought by Lambda Legal. We've been covering the battle for access to discovery documents. The government has been desperate to hide any evidence which would help the plaintiffs and the court determine whether this policy was issued, uh, which was issued by uh, Secretary Defense James Mattis, 
uh, was dictated by the president and therefore preordained, or whether it was the product of independent military judgment separate and apart from the president's tweet. So in this edition of Law Notes, we cover a series of orders in the Karnowski case issued by Judge Peckman in favor of the plaintiff. One is a September 2nd opinion, which denied the administration's motion to quash third-party subpoenas issued to really high-ranking military officials, including Mattis, um, and then in a subsequent order, Judge Peckman compelled the production of documents concerning the president's tweet because they did not fall within the scope of the deliberative process privilege. Um, so with the election just a few weeks away, the course of this litigation may ultimately rest on whether President Trump is reelected or whether the uh, Biden administration will quickly reverse this tragic and harmful policy. Art, do you have any thoughts about uh, the access to discovery documents, the ongoing litigation in this case, and in particular, the judges, uh, in this instance anyway, increasing frustration with the stonewalling by the government here, the attempt to just delay, delay, delay. Well, it, it seems to me that the government's strategy here is to litigate every discovery issue in the Ninth Circuit, at least, and possibly in the Supreme Court, because they're trying to play out the string here. I mean, if Trump is reelected, this litigation will drag on for years. If Trump is not reelected, one assumes an incoming Biden administration will revoke Trump's policy and reinstate the policy that was announced by then Secretary of Defense Ashton Carter in 2016 during the Obama administration. So that, that would moot the case, although individual people might have claims uh, with respect to uh, harm that they suffered under the policy. Uh, but in this case, and I think this was gutsy on the part of Lambda, you know, they wanted to pose Secretary Mattis, or now ex-Secretary Mattis, they wanted to depose Admiral Moran, they wanted to depose Secretary Wilkie, they wanted to depose General Selva, they wanted to depose the people who were on the so-called task force. The people in the room where it happened? In the room where it happened, right, because because any minutes of the task force meetings, they're being stonewalled on discovery. All kinds of documents generated or considered by the task force, they're being stonewalled on discovery. How about deposing this people and asking them, what did you rely on? When did you rely on it? What did you think your mission was? Was it just to effectuate Trump's ban or was it to look at the issue afresh from a military perspective? You know, they wanna to get to the key questions that relate to the equal protection issues in this case. And, uh, the second ruling, similarly, it's documents that the court has already decided. The court said that the uh, deliberative privilege, which is being invoked by the government, only extends to certain documents issued at certain times. Other documents, which are explanatory rather than involving deliberation of policy, are discoverable. And she required them to submit in camera a, a list of documents that they're claiming deliberative uh, uh, privilege on, and she's been reviewing them in camera. I mean, it's voluminous. Uh, I mean, she's, she's a senior judge now. Maybe she's cleared her calendar and she's mainly doing this. But she and her clerks, they go in through all these documents and they've decided that the overwhelming majority of the documents they're looking at are not privileged. Mm -hmm. That the government is just willy-nilly claiming privilege for everything and putting the burden on the court 
to decide what is and isn't privileged because the government's not doing any analysis here at all. Well, I really hope that it is the case that this issue goes away. Um, It strikes me that we are speaking for the very last time before we meet again in November, hopefully after we have some certainty around the election. The election will certainly have happened, but whether we have a result or not is uh, TBD. Here's hoping. So once again, thank you, Art, for joining us uh, and talking to us for the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT podcast. And I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. Of course, we will be back next week where we'll be talking with Sharon McGowan about Amy Coney Barrett and her record and whether she's going to end up on the court or not and what we can expect if and when she does. Join us then. Thank you so much. 